Hello, everyone. This is Sharif Cronomer with the Yale GradCast interview series. In this episode, we will hear from Dr. Phil Corlett and Dr. Al Powers on their recent science paper that discusses and investigates the fascinating yet mysterious phenomenon of hallucination. Let's listen. My name is Phil Corlett. Uh, I'm an assistant professor here in psychiatry. Uh, I have a joint appointment in, in psychology too. Um, I'm from the UK. Uh, I trained at Cambridge University and um, I trained in cognitive neuroscience, which means that I try and study the brain to figure out how the mind works. Um, and I've been doing that here at Yale with a particular focus on uh, the symptoms of psych psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia. Uh, particularly the positive symptoms, so hallucinations uh, and delusions. And I'm Mal Powers. I am a psychiatrist and researcher in the Department of Psychiatry. So at the core of your science paper is this really interesting phenomenon called hallucinations. And I think lots of people have heard about it, but probably don't have a good sense of what it is. So could you both describe what is a hallucination? How is it different from delusions, which sometimes gets confused with hallucinations? Uh, yeah, so hallucinations, um, really simply put, uh, hallucination is a per, uh, percept, um, so the experience of something in the absence of an external stimulus. Um, so hearing a voice when no one actually is present um, to, to produce that voice, for example. Delusions, Phil can speak more, uh, more uh, directly to, but generally defined as a departure from consensual reality, a belief that is not uh, shared by uh, your community. Right, and a fixed and I false think, belief. Yeah. Right, so they're fixed false beliefs, and I think you know one of the tricky things that our paper raises, and I think we're wrestling with as a field more broadly, is what is the relationship between beliefs and perception, and I think our data, and our theoretical sort of stance is that that difference is maybe more artificial than we'd previously sort of thought, so that strong beliefs can really change what you perceive in the world, and obviously what you perceive can update your beliefs, but perhaps in people with delusions, that's not the case. So the model that we're working with really speaks to the sort of intersection between perception and, and cognition and how at, at sort of either extreme ends, you might end up with perceiving things that really aren't there, that would be a hallucination and believing things that really don't pertain. But at their, at their core, they may be quite strongly related. I think the public usually interacts with hallucinations in two main contexts, either one that is drug-induced, you know, taking LSD or ketamine, uh, and then those that are caused or associated with a psychiatric disorder. Can you describe how are those two different hallucination types similar or different? I mean, they might not be particularly different, actually. And in fact, there's quite a lot of research going on here at Yale and, and has sort of historically gone on here to try and model some of the symptoms of psychiatric illnesses with drugs like LSD and, and ketamine, transiently and reversibly and, and safely. Um, I suppose uh, Aldous Huxley puts it best in uh, Heaven and Hell, where he says that you know the masculine experience might be incredibly heavenly, and it's very similar to what happens in schizophrenia. But when you have schizophrenia, you don't know when it's going to end, and that can make the face of heaven look completely hellish. So if you don't have an obvious cause uh, for the experiences that you're having, you can come up with quite frightening and and elaborate explanations for what's happening to you. So let's try to start unpacking the title of your science paper here. So let's start with uh, Pavlovian conditioning. What is that? 
Yeah, so Pavlovian or classical conditioning is a basic mechanism of learning um, that's been identified, uh, well, well, initially identified by Pavlov <laughs> um, uh, back, uh, back, you know, several, several, well, I guess a hundred or so years ago. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a way. It's a it's a manner of um, of associating the occurrence of two particular things um, that are kind of uh, in the environment. Um, in this particular case, we um, drove associative learning um, of uh, the relationship between a light and a, and a tone. Right. Uh, in Pavlov's case, it was you know Pavlov's dogs uh, associating food with a with a. Um, with a, a tone. It wasn't a bell. It was, it was a, a metronome. metronome. That's right. People yeah. think it was a bell, but it wasn't. And what about uh, perceptual priors? Well, those are those beliefs that I mentioned earlier, that the idea that uh, the things that you experience sort of get registered as a set of, or a probability distribution, if you like, of things that could happen next in the world. Uh, and we use those sort of efficiently as a way to guide what we're currently perceiving. And we've long thought that in schizophrenia, the way that those prior experiences might be used to constrain what you're currently perceiving might change, right? So you might have weak priors, so everything's surprising, or you might have really strong priors so that things are sculpted out of whole cloth and you perceive things that really aren't there. Do priors make our perceptions more or less accurate? Is it, is it just an efficiency program in our brains? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, things like visual illusions, I think, really point to the importance of um, of, uh, of our prior beliefs, right? So, so things like the rotating hollow mask, for example, which is, uh, you know, often you'll see a video of a, a mask of Charlie Chaplin's face and it rotates clockwise and your brain so strongly expects that faces point outwards, right, that they're convex rather than concave, that your prior beliefs about facial features and the way light falls onto particular stimuli actually edit what you're perceiving so that you infer that the mask changes direction rather than uh, rather than it becomes a sort of face pointing inwards so um, to some extent I think that's adaptive right that you don't want to sort of rewrite your your history of experiences just in light of a few small counterexamples or unusual situations and that is more efficient right uh, so the challenge, I think, is to maintain a set of beliefs that are sort of relatively protected against random fluctuations, but flexible enough in case the whole world changes. And perhaps we could think about things like psychotic illness as instances where the whole world has changed for somebody, right? And they come up with a whole new explanatory scheme for what's happening to them. Are those perceptual priors uh, developed and learned at a certain time in your life and then you just live off those learned beliefs or are we constantly gaining information that get driven into this perceptual prior phenomenon? So I think, you know, the, the simple answer is we don't really know and I think the safest answer is that it's probably a little bit of both uh, what's innate and what we learn. So a sort of neo-constructivist approach, right, where your brain is probably tuned to learning per particular quantities better than others. Uh, but, you know, the priors that you form throughout your, your life might well be sort of driven by the environment that you experience, right? That makes the most sense. But, but yeah, I think, I think it's a sort of combination wherein what we, the baggage that we bring to particular tasks is obviously colored by what we've gone through in our lives, what we've experienced perceptually and emotionally. Um, but again, um, in these sort of very simple laboratory conditions, we can set up new priors fairly easily. Could you 
discuss a little bit that paradigm, the test that you gave your participants? Uh, the paradigm itself was adapted from uh, another paradigm that was used uh, both here at Yale and elsewhere uh, in the late 1800s, and then uh, after that uh, in the 1940s, kind of more popularized by a gentleman named Doug Elson. Um, the paradigm itself, uh, conditioned hallucinations paradigm, um, was simply having someone come into the lab. <clears throat> this is how it existed in the 40s, for example. Someone would come into the lab for a hearing test, and um, they would be kind of sat down at a desk, not like this one, not unlike this one, um, and uh, there would be a two-way mirror kind of next to them, and uh, their job would be to listen really hard for a tone um, after this ready light came on. And uh, so when they started hearing the tone, which would kind of ramp up very, very, very slowly, um, they would start pressing this button, and they would keep pressing it as long as they start, as long as they were hearing it. Um, and then as it tapered off, which is what Doug Elson was doing behind the, the two-way mirror, um, this is the 1940s, this is not automated, um, and they would take their button, their, their finger off the button. And they would do this over and over and over again. So really the sequence of events was light, tone, press the button, over and over and over and over again. Um, and so uh, they did this uh, up to 90 trials or upward of that. Um, and what they found is that when they you know, presented the ready light, even though he wasn't actually presenting the tone, people would start pressing the button and say that they actually heard it. And when they asked them um, you know, levels of confidence about whether they heard it or not, they were pretty confident that they heard it. There are their levels of um, uh, their duration of response, uh, their latency of response was very similar to when they actually were hearing the tone. And so what they concluded was that they're actually eliciting um, hallucinations using this kind of classical conditioning paradigm. So how did you resurrect this 100-year-old study? Yeah. Well, so, so we were talking um, early on in my residency which is when we met, um, about kind of good ways to test the strong prior hypothesis. There are a few different studies that have been done previously doing something kind of similar um, with faces and houses, for example, um, in the visual system. Um, so you could pair uh, a couple of stimuli uh, together and kind of bias someone's uh, interpretation of an ambiguous stimulus toward whether it's a face or, or a house, right? Um, and this would be, again, testing this kind of prior, this, uh, this dominance of, of prior information um, during perception. Um, we decided to, uh, after you know, Phil actually came across this in the initial paper, um, or one of the initial papers, to do this uh, in a kind of auditory conditioned hallucinations a paradigm that was not unlike the ones that had been done previously. Um, there was one group that did this in 2002 that we came across uh, in people who had actual clinical hallucinations. It was not, maybe not the most statistically rigorous study in the world, um, but they did find um, something very similar to what our, our initial findings were, which is that people who have um, baseline clinical hallucinations were more susceptible to this particular effect. They didn't do it in an imaging paradigm. So the real challenge for us was to figure out how to um, convert this into something that was amenable to mirror imaging. And that's where, uh, to some degree, my experience in, in psychophysics and, uh, and multisensory um, work uh, came, in, came in real handy. And so uh, what we did, uh, instead of doing this kind of really old school 19 second long trial thing where I'm sitting behind a two-way mirror, um, uh, instead, yeah, you know, <laughs> ramping up the sound, um, we first determined people's thresholds for detection of the stimuli. Um, so you'd, pre you'd present the visual stimulus, which in this case was a checkerboard, because we really wanted to excite 
visual cortex, and visual cortex really likes checkerboards. Um, uh, and uh, the one hundred or the one thousand hertz um, tone embedded in white noise was our auditory stimulus. So, um, what we would do is uh, present that kind of over and over again in the context of the scanner. Um, and using a maximum likelihood-based procedure, figure out exactly what intensity of tone um, would elicit a 75% yes response rate um, per uh, per person. That would be their threshold. And then, because we were able to uh, determine not only the threshold, but also the, the slope of their psychometric curves, so we'd be able to figure out what their 50% likelihood of response was, their 25% likelihood of response. And then kind of... Um, design the experiment that that followed uh, based upon those numbers per in each individual um, and then uh, with, the, with the idea of teaching them this association as, as quickly and efficiently as possible and this kind of a smooth progression as possible. Um, so then early on in the experiment we presented uh, people with uh, the light, the, the checkerboard flash, and the tone at threshold so it's loud enough to detect 75% of the time but not really really loud. Um, over and over and over again, um, and then subsequently over the course of these 12 mini blocks of 30 trials each, um, presented them with more and more sub-threshold trials um, and more and more no-tone present trials. Um, and so in that way we kind of in a, one smooth motion uh, trained them and then tested them. One of the most interesting parts of uh, your study is these four different categories of participants that you recruited, and one particular category that I know you know I'm speaking of. Could you talk about those four different groups of participants? Yeah, no, so, so we wanted to really get at the mechanisms that we think underlie hallucinations and whether or not there's any overlap um, with, with this particular phenomenon. And so um, what we wanted to do then is to you know, definitely do what other people have done before, which is have people who have a psychotic illness in who have you know, daily voice hearing and kind of see how they do in this particular task. Um, but we also wanted to differentiate between um, you know, the effects of hallucinations and also just the kind of overall smorgasbord of, of clinical symptoms you get in people with psychotic illness, right? And the real only way to do that, to get that double dissociation, is using a uh, two-by-two design. Um, so we then had people who different uh, who differed in their um, likelihood of or their having or not having a psychotic illness, um, and their having or not having daily hallucinations. And that gives those four groups that we just talked about. Um, and uh, the one you're speaking of that's kind of unusual is the um, people who have daily hallucinations but don't have a diagnosable psychotic illness. Um, there's been a good amount of work over the past uh, 15, 20 years on um, people who have uh, daily psychotic-like experiences, including hearing voices, um, who don't require any kind of psychiatric intervention, um, are not distressed by these experiences, function quite well. Um, and they're often termed uh, non-clinical voice hearers or healthy voice hearers or non-treatment seeking voice hearers. Um, the work was initially done uh, in Europe. Uh, a guy named Jim Van Oss did a lot of the earlier stuff. Um, and it's since has spread to the UK and then to the US as well. Um, they, the way they kind of identify these people is by you know, giving surveys or sending out surveys to large swaths of the population. Like, hey, you know, have you ever heard a voice or have you ever had these other kinds of types of unusual experiences? And um, a surprisingly large part, uh, portion of people, proportion of people actually would say yes uh, to these and then they have them in for kind of more fine-grained interviews. 
and um, develop cohorts uh, based upon that. We didn't have the resources to be able to do that um, because it takes uh, quite a massive effort to be able to do that and then also fly people in and things like that. Um, and so we kind of went at, went at it from the opposite direction, which is to say, okay, so we agree with these guys that maybe these, uh, these pe people do exist uh, in our community. Um, if they do exist in our community, where do we think maybe they're hanging out? Where, where might, we, might we find them? And um, so we, we had a brainstorming session right here uh, in this room uh, as to where we might find them. Um, and we came up with a number of different kind of creative uh, ideas. One being, um, well, if I'm hearing a voice every day I, and I don't need psychiatric support, perhaps I'm getting support from somewhere else. Um, and perhaps that's a religious community, for example, that accepts these um, these ideas or these experiences being as being normative. Um, so maybe some charismatic Christian sects might be a good place to look. Um, and then uh, we we came upon uh, the idea uh, of of psychics. Um, as to but you know maybe people who get these messages think they're actually from dead people, and um, so we googled um, uh, Connecticut psychics, and it turns out there's a Connecticut psychics association, and um, got on the horn and talked to the fellow who who runs that, um, and he said yeah you know we have these monthly you know get-togethers every every month and in local hotels and things so. You want to come by? Cool. So uh, I did. I went with our, our lab manager at the time and stopped by and said hi to this guy and uh, said, hey, we're the guys on the phone. Um, do you, uh, you know, you know? again, we're looking for people who have kind of auditory experiences that they can't really explain, but maybe think that they're part of part of their psychic gifts um, and that other people can't hear. And and he said, oh, yeah, so you were, you're looking for someone who's clairaudient. And I said, I have never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, he's like, you should talk to her. So we went over around the corner and talked to her, um, who was our first participant. Um, and lovely fi early 50s um, uh, woman who uh, worked as a, um, as a dispatcher during the day uh, for a suburban town. Um, uh, very upfront about her experiences and never sought psychiatric help at all um, and would describe her voices, um, her voice hearing experiences as helpful, never really um, uh, malicious at all, um, and uh, and most of the time just kind of um, unremarkable. So she'd come out of the, uh, the front door, for example, and they'd narrate, she's going to her car now, um, or they would tell her which way to go um, in terms of going, getting on the highway or something like that, um, and she would listen. Right. Um, but she described him uh, in a very similar ways to some of my early psychosis patients, um, which is, you know, an actual um, voice-like event, um, had a timbre and a volume and a location in space, um, and happened daily. And um, so then we were kind of off and running. And after that, um, after we had those initial couple interviews and things went well, um, they were actually quite an enthusiastic group to recruit. Um, they thought that the work was really important and to some degree it kind of fit with their worldview, which is that, you know, this is a gift and I'm meant to use it as uh, a way of helping other people. And uh, uh, because of that, I think this is a way of helping other people. So I'm going to participate and have my friends do the same. So both of you are experts on patients with uh, psychiatric disorders that experience voice hearing and, and other hallucinations. Could you compare and contrast how are the psychic voice hearers different from those 
who had diagnosable disorders who also experienced hallucinations. Yeah, so that was the subject of a paper that we published in uh, in January uh, in Schizophrenia Bulletin. We decided to lead um, with the um, with the phenomenology and the, comp- the phenomenological comparison um, between those two particular groups and the other two groups that we had. We wanted to well. warm people up to this idea. Yeah, we're like, hey, you know, we're not going to just <laughs> we're not conditioning people to to hallucinate, and we're we're doing this in psychics and right. everything else all at it's once. A lot so to take. It is. Uh, so we decided to kind of phase it in, um, and there are really interesting findings from the initial paper too, um, and uh, mostly surrounding the question you just asked. So. Uh, what's similar, what's different about those two voice hearing groups. And what's similar actually is a lot. Um, so if you divide up, and we, we, so first of all, how do you get at this stuff in the first place? And so we, I did a structured, well, not so, semi-structured clinical interview um, with them uh, that included a number of different measures that we borrowed from our colleagues in forensic psychiatry um, that were meant to, A, characterize voices in as fine-grained manner as possible, but also um, to detect malingering. If possible, as you can as you can imagine in forensics, like people would come in and say, "I'm hearing voices," and that's why I did X bad thing, right? Um, and so they've developed tools to actually figure that out. Um, and the way they've done that is by doing these kind of really large, fine-grained um, questionnaires about voices, um, asking like you know nitty-gritty details about them, and then doing this in a large number of people who they know hear voices, and seeing kind of what comes out of that. Turns out there are a lot of uh, characteristics that are really, really common in people who actually hear voices. Um, and then there are a few that pretty much never show up. And they're not ones that you would expect to be kind of unusual. These are things like, um, do you mostly hear voices that are kind of inaudible or re- are shouting all the time, practically? Um, or the voices that change gender mid-sentence or only children um, or things like that. Um, those are really unusual to endorse if you actually have reticle voice hearing experience. Um, and so what they did then was develop this kind of structured interview based upon those findings. And then what you can do is see if they're endorsing the voice, the person who's claiming to hear voices, endorsing, you know, the really common stuff or the really uncommon stuff. And you would expect that, you know, you'd see kind of equal endorsement of both. In both our voice hearing groups, um, we saw uh, no one endorsing any of those items. Um, so either they're faking it super well to the point where, like, I didn't know any of this stuff before I started researching it, um, or uh, they're, they're doing it better than I did. I would, um, or um, you know, they they fit with the typical voice hearing experience at least on a very low level. And, and that was the first finding from the paper was that um, at a very low level, um, you know, again things like where things are happening in space, the syntax that you're hearing, um, are they men, women, children, both, um, or all, all of those, um, or uh, how loud they are, how frequently they happen, um, things like that. Um, on those measures, uh, they were pretty much indistinguishable. There were very, very few things that were different between the two groups. Um, one, uh, the thing that actually did really pop out is very different were higher level categories. So how likely they were to actually interact with them, like how likely they were to engage with them or resist them, um, how uh, often they did that, um, how they perceived them as to whether or not they're malicious or could affect their lives in a negative way. Um, and also a couple other kind of things that we wanted to ask as a follow-up, which were when was this all, when did this all first happen and what was your experience in uh, sharing these experiences uh, first with someone who's important to your to your life, um, and those were those are different between the two the two groups. So our 
clinic or non-clinical or the psychics, I just called them the psychics, <laughs> um, were uh, endorsed an earlier age of onset, earlier age of onset, so they were about uh, eight, seven or eight years old um, when they first had these experiences, um, whereas the, the more, uh, the patient voice hearers are a little bit older, about 15 or so. Um, and not super surprisingly, uh, the people who identified as psychics were had a much more kind of positive or neutral experience uh, sharing their experiences with people who were important to them and the patients were, were much more negative. So can you talk about how these four different groups you recruited uh, reacted differently or behaved differently with your uh, experimental hallucination paradigm? So the, the two voice hearing groups were about five times more likely to show conditioned hallucinations to say that they heard tones that we weren't presenting them with, which is a sort of really interesting thing. I guess we call it a double dissociation. It's kind of exciting when that happens because mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it suggests that there are sort of two two mechanisms, although they, they may not be independent mechanisms. There are two things at, at play um, that helped us pick apart the differences between these four really interesting groups. Mm -hmm. We also implemented fMRI. Mm -hmm. Could you speak uh, briefly about what is fMRI? So fMRI uh, is uh, functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging um, is a way by which we can indirectly determine neural activity um, in uh, over the course of, of some cognitive or physical or, or, or um, uh, motor or any kind of task that, that they can do, uh, people can do in the scanner, or non-people can do in the scanner. <laughs> right. Uh, and the way they do that um, is by using um, uh, oxygenation uh, of the blood uh, in the brain um, as a proxy for neural activity. Um, and so uh, one of the nice things about MRI is that um, there are certain, um, uh, certain types of signal that are susceptible to uh, to local interference, um, uh, and one of the things that tends to interfere with things um, is uh, deoxygenated hemoglobin. Um, so you can actually see an increase or decrease in this particular kind of signal on MRI, which is called T2 star, uh, based upon the oxygen content of, uh, of the blood in very localized um, small bits of the brain called voxels. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, why is that interesting? Well, because, you know, uh, oxygen goes up and down based upon neural activity, and so then actually is a nice um, kind of potential measure for uh, looking at activity. Um, so the way we utilized that um, was by uh, having them do this, this particular task in the scanner, um, and we could ask the question doing that, um, you know, what is actually happening when people are, are reporting these conditional hallucinations. Um, does the brain activity support idea, our idea that this is actually a perceptual phenomenon, that this is actually a hallucination? And uh, one way we went about that um, was by using the thresholding paradigm I talked about earlier. So the computer is kind of going up and down in terms of tone volume to figure out exactly what that 75% likelihood of responding point uh, is, what, what the intensity actually is. Um, but they're doing that in the scanner. We didn't want to change the environment uh, kind of between thresholding and actually doing the task. Um, and so the nice thing about that is that you can then ask the question with those earlier thresholding, that earlier thresholding run, um, what part of the brain goes up and down in activity along with uh, the intensity of the tone? So we, we uh, did that and we identified what we termed uh, tone responsive regions which um, in a very reassuring way um, was uh, the auditory cortex. <laughs> um, and uh, so then we were able to take those regions of interest, um, those bits of cortex, um, and then later on uh, ask the really crucial question, which is, okay, when nothing's happening, when no tone is actually being presented, it's just the light alone, 
um, what happens in these particular regions. You would expect that if people are actually hearing something, um, the auditory cortex would look like it actually is hearing something. Uh, it would be more active when they said yes versus when they say no. And that's exactly what we saw across all subjects. Yeah. And then what we could do uh, is, is then uh, expand our search to not only those particular regions, but to the entire brain. And, um, and ask the question, okay, what in the brain actually is different when they're saying yes versus when they say no, when all the other stimulus parameters are the same? Um, and when we did that, we found a network of regions that we found really interesting. Um, the global peak um, for that particular contrast is in the anterior insula bilaterally. Um, we also found activation in um, auditory cortex, like I said earlier, but also superior temporal gyrus, superior temporal sulcus actually, um, cerebellum, uh, parahippocampal gyrus. Um, and the anterior cingulate cortex. Uh, this particular network of regions has been shown um, multiple times, uh, and we highlight a figure from a recent meta-analysis on this, uh, when people actually have voice hearers in the scanner uh, pressing a button when they start hearing a voice. Um, and so you can get an idea as to what network might be potentially involved uh, in voice hearing. Um, and those, those nodes in that particular network showed up uh, in our task as well, which gave us confidence that not only are we maybe inducing hallucinations, but uh, that the network that we're activating when we are inducing hallucination looks a lot like the, the clinical hallucination network that we're interested in. Does the research that you all are doing have any uh, implications to treating uh, people with hallucinations, particularly those hallucinations that people consider disruptive in their lives? So yes, I think it does. Um, so one of the things I think we're really interested in as a field is the idea that we can use these sort of computational and neuroimaging approaches to do precision medicine. So to try and match people to particular treatments more directly, to try and figure out what their underlying pathophysiology is and treat that rather than assuming that there's a one-size-fits-all uh, mechanism that's causing people to have these hallucinations and it turns out that we know a little bit about how prior beliefs are instantiated in the brain and what neural and neurochemical systems are involved so the cholinergic system is really important for the specification of priors if you give people drugs like scopolamine they'll hallucinate and they actually show more conditioned hallucinations on this sort of a task so that gives us an idea that maybe by modulating the cholinergic system in people that show this effect most strongly we might be able to to help them more directly. Mm. I think the neural mechanisms that we've identified, particularly you know, the insula and the cerebellum, might be really interesting targets for transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is something we're trying to actively pursue. Um, this is the idea that if you expose the, the brain to a very rapidly changing magnetic field, you can induce currents in the neurons that are nearer to the surface. Um, depending on the pattern of stimulation, you, you can increase or decrease activity in particular regions. Um, so one idea would be to decrease activity in the insula in people to see if it helps with their hallucinations. And the other idea would be to boost activity in the cerebellum to see if we can help people update their beliefs in light of new evidence, which mm -hmm. ought to help with, perhaps help with symptoms of psychosis more broadly. Um, and the other thing that I think, you know, Al can speak to better than I is that, you know, we're always looking for ways of identifying people as early as possible in their illness trajectory. And the way that we do that now is by asking them if they're hearing voices. So maybe by testing people really early on, people who maybe we suspect are already at high risk, maybe they've got a family member who's already psychotic, maybe we could use the task behaviorally to predict who might convert to a full-blown psychotic episode. And that's that's something else going to be following up on yeah. actively. I thought we, we, we right both now. are. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so we'll probably do it together. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, no, I think I think there are a lot of clinical implications, and I, you know, I think more broadly, one of the really interesting things about all of this work is it shows how malleable our perceptions are, right? And it shows how susceptible we all are to perceiving things that really aren't there. And I think to some extent, it might normalize the experience of hearing voices because we can make you hear a voice just by pairing it with a visual stimulus really easily. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we use tones, but you you could imagine that we could we could switch in phrases or or single words and we could I could probably make you hear those um, and so that that to me suggests that you know maybe the experience of psychosis doesn't need to be a completely othering experience for people and that you know we're all probably quite near to being psychotic most of the time <laughs> well thank you both so much for speaking about your research and looking forward to reading future papers in science no less <laughs> looking forward to writing them <laughs> We've been there at Nature Next. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yale GradCast interview series. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing to the Yale GradCast as we upload new material each week. Gradcast. Brought to you by the Graduate Student Assembly.